Welcome to another episode of The Solar Podcast. Today, Dave is speaking with Mark Jacobson, Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Stanford University. Join us as they discuss the feasibility and benefits of transitioning from 100% renewable energy, debunking myths about renewable energy, and the straightforward policies and actions needed to accelerate the transition away from fossil fuels. Let's get started on The Solar Podcast. Well, welcome back to the Solar Podcast. I'm Dave Anderson, your host. I'm thrilled to have with me today Mark Jacobson. So Mark is actually a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Stanford for the last 25 years. Uh, he's focused his research on uh, developing large-scale clean renewable energy. He's a very prolific author. I've had the opportunity to listen to him speak on many podcasts as well as other platforms. Um, I've also studied some of the things that he's researched and written. I'm absolutely thrilled to have him on the podcast today. Mark, I'd love if you wouldn't mind just giving our listeners a little bit about who you are. But I, I do have to mention in part of your bio, and I'm sure it'll come up, but uh, this is something that's really been a passion and a lifelong pa uh, project for you. This isn't something that you're doing as a profession, um, and, and I have a lot of respect for you for that. But Mark, please, uh, welcome to the podcast. I'd love for you to give a, our listeners a little bit more of an intro and a little bit more of an understanding about who you are. Yes, thank you, Dave, for having me on. Um, so I study air pollution, climate, and the problems associated with them, and also clean renewable energy solutions to those problems. And so I've been very passionate about trying to understand and solve large-scale pollution and climate problems ever since I was a teenager and dedicated my career toward that goal. And so when I started at Stanford, I was doing computer modeling of air pollution and climate primarily. And then a few years later, I started looking at clean renewable energy solutions to those problems. And starting in about 2009, I began developing energy plans for well, first the world as a whole, but then uh, individual U.S. states and then countries and individual cities and towns and how to transition entirely to clean renewable energy, namely wind, water, and solar power and electrification of everything. So that's basically where I am now and still looking at those problems, still looking at the underlying problems and the solutions. You know, we're definitely going to want to spend some time talking about your most recent book. I believe it's your most recent book, unless you have a publication that's come out since 2002, but no miracles needed. But you've written several books on the subject over the years. And uh, a lot of listeners to the podcast know that I grew up in a coal mining town in Western, or excuse me, in Eastern Montana. And they talked about how clean the, the, the coal plant was. And, and you could see the smokestacks uh, emanating the, the steam and the smoke and the pollution and whatnot coming from the stacks. And and there was always a, a positive propaganda um, campaign that was going on at the schools because we lived under the shadows of this gigantic coal-fired power plant. And they'd always talk about, you know, uh, taking the pollutants out of the air and never really talked about decarbonization at all. That wasn't part of the conver conversation at all. So I'm curious over the 25 years that you've been writing these books and actually from the time that when you were 13 years old, when you really started talking about removing pollution, what are the things uh, where the biggest changes in terms of the way that you sort of think about um, air quality and um, in terms of how you think about removing pollution and, and how you sort of like think about solving these big existential problems? Well, what I've learned is that there is no way to remove pollution or to eliminate it from a smokestack. The only way is to change the actual source of energy or the source of the process. Uh, because no matter how many filters you put on something, you're always allowing some pollution to go through those filters. That cold fire power plant exhaust that kind of looks clean really contains a lot of invisible particles and gases, oxides of nitrogen, 
oxides of hydrogen, organic gases, small particulate matter, and things like mercury. And these are all, you can't see them. And just because you can't see them don't doesn't mean that they're not there. In fact, there's dangerous particles. All particles cause health effects, uh, even at the very lowest levels, close to zero. And the most dangerous particles are the smallest ones that you can't see. They penetrate deepest into your lungs. And so you, no matter, you know, regardless of the fact that we've had filters around and some kind of scrubbers for coal plants ever since about the 1860s, uh, there's still pollution coming out of these coal plants. And you can't, similarly, you can't take all the carbon dioxide out of a coal plant either. And even when you do that, it takes a lot of energy. And where does that energy come from? And, t- and when I say it takes energy, it takes a lot of energy up to, th- in the case of a coal plant, if you try to add a carbon capture equipment to it, up to 30% of the electricity of the coal plant has to go toward uh, running that carbon capture equipment. So it's, it takes a lot of energy. And so that basically means you might need to, if you're going to get that from the coal, the energy from the coal, you're going to have to mine 30% more coal, you have 30% more air pollution. Now there's no free lunch. Uh, even if you use wind energy or solar energy to power that carbon capture equipment, that's per- you're preventing that wind or solar from actually replacing the coal plant, in which case it would actually re- reduce more carbon dioxide and also eliminate the air pollution and the mining of the coal and the coal infrastructure. So using energy to try to scrub carbon from coal or any other source is actually an opportunity cost that increases carbon dioxide, it increases mining, it increases air pollution, it increases fossil fuel infrastructure. So it's not a solution to anything. Yeah. Over the years, I mean, this idea of clean energy has taken a handful of different names. So like when I was a kid, we talked about greenhouse gas or ozone. Uh, when when uh, And then more recently, we, we talked about uh, global warming, and then it's kind of switched to climate change and then climate catastrophe, these different names. Um, has there been an evolution in our learning in terms of understanding the impact? And do you feel like we have a good understanding today about really understanding what the equation looks like in terms of the the net effect of either carbon or other sorts of pollutions? Um, and obviously, um, we and all the listeners on this show tend to be pretty strong advocates of all things <laughs> renewable energy. Um, but uh, I'd love to get your take just in terms of the evolution from a research perspective about uh, our understanding of, of the impact of, of the non-renewable energy sources that we've sort of relied on over the, over the decades? Well, I think we've known for centuries about the air pollution impacts of combustion fuels, whether they're biofuels or fossil fuels. I mean, air, air pollution results from combustion. And worldwide today, over 7 people die every year from air pollution. And most of it, 90% of it is from energy, either fossil fuels or biofuels. And, but we've known about air pollution impacts for a long time. I mean, the things that we've learned in the last 30 years are the details, you know, what are some of the specific health effects, you know, what are the, some of the feedbacks that go on in the atmosphere, how do air pollutants feed back to climate, how do air pollutants feed back to each other to affect their own concentrations, how do air pollutants feedback to meteorology. These are all details that are really interesting from a scientific perspective. But the most important thing that the public really wants to know, needs to know, is the the health effects and you know what kind of quantifying the health effects. 
And so to that extent, we've known that we know there are lots of health effects for a long time. We're just now distilling what are the more specific health effects of pollutants. In terms of climate, we've also known for at least since Arrhenius back in around 1895, where he hypothesized that you know doubling or coal burning since the Industrial Revolution started had the potential to raise Earth's temperature quite a bit due to the greenhouse effect, well, enhance the greenhouse effect due to humans, which is called global warming. And that, so we've known about that. And again, you know, it's in the 120 plus years since Arrhenius, his first discovery, um, we've then, we've refined that the number, but, you know, the actual concept hasn't changed. So we have enough information and we've had enough information for a long time to I know that we have to solve the emissions. We have to eliminate emissions that affect both air pollution and climate. And many of the same emissions, almost most of the same emissions that affect air pollution also affect climate and vice versa. Although there are some emissions that are not from energy that affect climate, uh, such as methane, emiss methane emissions due to from agriculture and uh, nitrous oxide emissions from agriculture, halogens, which are often used as coolants and solvents. And also, well, biomass burning, which is an air pollution problem, but it's not an energy-related air pollution problem, and also affects it as well. So, yeah, we've learned a lot, but we should have been solving this problem a long time. Yeah, absolutely. I love the the no-nonsense title to your book, No Miracles Needed, right? So, and, and we're definitely going to want to talk about that. But one of the, the biggest critiques against renewable energy is this idea that, well, what are we going to, you know, we can't just stop burning, you know, fuel for our vehicles. We can't, you know, we're reliant on coal. Uh, and, and there's so many anecdotes that get thrown around, uh, thrown around to sort of like try to spoil the party for solar, wind and, and water, these other renewable energy sources that have proven to be very reliable over time. How do you, uh, you know, as you sort of like talk about that, how does the book sort of frame for uh, the the reader, and I think, by the way, it does it in a, in a really simple way, but maybe you can kind of help our listeners understand how the book sort of frames in a simple way how these problems um, uh, and these transitions maybe aren't as big as what some people are making them out to be. Well, I, I point out in the book that we have 95% of the technologies that we need, and even the ones we don't have, we know how to do, we just haven't commercialized them. And those include like long-distance aircraft, long-distance ships some industrial processes. But for the most part, I mean, the, the solution is very simple. We electrify as much as possible and we provide that electricity with clean, renewable energy. So there are four major sectors, energy sectors. There's electricity, transportation, buildings, and industry. For electricity, well, so we want to electrify and then to provide pretty much all the energy from electricity. So transportation, we'd go to battery electric vehicles and hydrogen fuel cell vehicles for large long-distance transport. And in those cases, the electricity for batteries and the electricity and hydrogen fuel cells, the hydrogen will be produced from electricity as well. So no, what's called blue hydrogen or brown hydrogen or gray hydrogen or any other color, just green hydrogen, which is from electricity. In both cases, the electricity would come from just wind, water, and solar power. And so that includes onshore and offshore wind, solar photovoltaics on rooftops and in power plants, concentrated solar power. Geothermal is part of the water, geothermal electricity and heat, and solar heat as well, and then hydroelectricity in small amounts of time. 
uh, for buildings, electrify those. We'd get rid of gas heaters, oil-based heaters. For air heating and water heating, we'd go entirely to electric heat pumps. For air conditioning, electric heat pumps. Clothes drying, electric heat pumps. For cooking, electric induction cooktops. So anything that where you're burning gas or other fuels in your home, we would electrify them. We could LED lights, more energy efficient homes, more weatherizing homes to try to so they don't lose heat. So that takes care of buildings. And I mean, that's definitely possible. I mean, I, I live in a, since 2017, a 100% renewable home, solar on my roof, batteries in my garage, heat pumps, electric induction. I haven't paid an electricity bill in six and a half years. And paid a gasoline bill because I have electric cars that are charged for my solar on my roof. I haven't paid a natural gas bill because I have no natural gas in my home. So definitely possible. All new homes, it's straightforward and should be done. Retrofitting existing homes is also straightforward. Technically, of course, it requires in the U.S. there's you know, 100 million homes, and worldwide there's a lot, lot more. And so it's a lot. It's a big project, but uh, you know we are, we are capable of doing that. We have the technology. For industry, we need to electrify that industrial processes. For all electricity and heat in industry, we go to renewable electricity and heat. But then we change out high temperature industrial processes. We'd use electric arc furnaces, induction furnaces, resistance furnaces, dielectric heaters, electron beam heaters. These are all existing electric technologies to give us high temperatures. Also heat pumps, moderate temperature processes. And even... What about people ask, well, what about carbon dioxide from steel and cement production? Well, that's straightforward too. There's now a steel plant in Sweden that runs, instead of using coke uh, to reduce iron ore to pure iron, which releases CO2, carbon dioxide, chemically, you can instead use hydrogen to convert iron ore to pure iron. And you can, if you produce the hydrogen with green electricity, it's green hydrogen. And that whole problem, then you use electric arc furnaces instead of blast furnaces. And when you do that, you reduce 98% plus of all CO2 emissions from steel. That is actually, they actually have a plan in Sweden to convert all their steel factories to green hydrogen. And several countries in Europe are doing this as well. So there's a solution right there. For cement, there's similar similar problem right now, ordinary Portland cement, you have carbon dioxide emissions from the release of carbon dioxide from calcium carbonate, because calcium is in the cement. But that's because we they use limestone. So now there's a company that, uh, instead of using limestone, uh, uses basalt. And basalt has no carbonate in it, so, and, but it does have calcium. So you can get the, and basalt is actually more common, it is more widespread than limestone. And so when you use basalt, you eliminate the process emissions, the chemical emissions of carbon dioxide. And again, if you use renewable electricity and heat for the rest of it, you can eliminate carbon dioxide from cement. There's also geopolymer cement, which has been doing this for years. It's another type of cement. There's an airport in, in Brisbane, Australia, that's built with 70,000 tons of geopolymer cement. No CO2 emissions need to be associated with that if you use renewable electricity and heat to provide electricity and heat. So we can transition all these sectors and then provide the electricity and heat with wind, water, and solar for all purposes. And so that's how you solve the problem. So I know you've done extensive research on all these things, and it seems like you have 
all the answers, which is great. Uh, yet there still seem to be these like major opponents to the transition to these clean and renewable energies. Um, so I'd love to hear what are some of the compelling like steel man arguments against this energy transition that you hear? And obviously as an academic, you, you certainly uh, try to make sure that your, uh, your thoughts hold up to scrutiny. What are some of the sort of like, um, you know, steel man arguments against this energy transition that you hear about that, 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 you, that you find either compelling or if you were to steel man this argument, how would you do it? Well, the, the ones I've heard, the most common one is, well, we're, the grid won't stay stable with wind and solar. This is a fallacy. It's not proven. Because first of all, we're using not only renewable electricity. There, you know, wind and solar are intermittent or variable, really. But I should point out that all energy sources are are intermittent. Because, like a nuclear plant, which provides when it's on, is providing constant power. Well, first of all, it's off on the order of ten percent of the year. In in France, it's actually it was off last year in twenty twenty two. All the nuclear plants in France were actually down 48% of the hours of the entire year. Wow. Capacity factor 52%. And there was an offshore wind farm that's been running five years that's had a capacity factor of 54%. So there's an onshore wind farm, offshore wind farm that was, for five years, was more reliable than the entire French nuclear fleet in 2022. So, but my point is not... I'm not saying that you know, re- renewables still need storage and backup, but so does so do fossil fuels. Uh, even in nuclear, when it nuclear or coal, when you're providing baseload power, flat power, that flat power does not meet demand. Demand varies intermittently, just wind and solar. So you always need some kind of backup or to meet the peaks in demand. So while you need probably more backup. With wind and solar, we have lots of types of backup. First of all, hydroelectric power. There are over 150 countries in the world that have hydroelectric power, and that's like a big battery. Uh, you can use it either for baseload or for peaking power to fill in gaps of solar and wind demand. Geothermal is also based. But there are actually nine countries of the world that are 985 to 100% wind, water, solar in their electricity generation, and they're all dominated by hydro. Um, and there are actually 40 countries that have over 50% wind, water, and solar in their generation. So hydro can be used as backup already. Pumped hydro is another source. And batteries, of course, can be used to backup. So, but anyway, that's the biggest thing that people have complained about. Uh, other things that people have heard are criticisms are, well, it'll take materials, minerals like uh, lithium or batteries. We need a lot of batteries if we, places that don't have a lot of hydro will need batteries. Well, if we compare, when we're looking at mining, we have to look at what we're going to be eliminating. Fossil fuels require continuous mining every hour of every day for the fuel itself. You need to drill wells for natural gas. You need to drill wells for oil. Big, uh, big coal mines. And in fact, there's so much mining. I mean, there are 1.3 million active oil and gas wells in the United States. There are 3.2 million abandoned ones. There are millions of miles of pipelines to move around gas and oil. I mean, this fossil fuel industry occupies 1.3% of all U.S. land area. 
and this is growing. And so when we look at the mining in that context, we, when we have wind and solar in particular, which would be over 90% of the energy solution in combination, we eliminate entirely fuel mining. So yeah, there's going to be some mining, additional mining for batteries, for lithium, for batteries and minerals. But this, we're talking about one one hundredth to one one thousandth the annual mining that's currently going on. So this is a red herring. That's another red herring that people throw out. The latest criticism I heard, which is pretty much a should be considered a joke, although it's pretty serious because it's getting a lot, getting a lot of play, is like offshore wind turbines killing whales. And <laughs> and so there's because there have been whale deaths off the east coast of the United States. And it's being attributed by a lot of anti-wind people to to offshore wind turbines, uh, except that they're forgetting that there are only six offshore wind turbines offshore in the entire United States. <laughs> and six, not six farms, six wind turbines. Yeah, <laughs> so it's, it's kind of hard to prove that you're getting these you know, tens of whale deaths uh, due to six turbines that are like located near an island. <laughs> and, uh, so this is complete nonsense, and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has debunked this claim that there's no relationship between offshore wind turbines or even investigating locations for offshore wind turbines and whale dumps. But you can just see how groups are, are getting together who oppose renewable energy. And the same thing happens with solar. You see people claiming, you know, like solar panels will... I've seen it, especially with concentrated solar, that you get beams that will kill birds or something like that, or you're going to damage tor tortoise habitat in the desert because you have some solar panels there. Which, you know, not, not to dismiss the biological concerns, but we have to consider that we have 7 million people die every year due to air pollution, and hundreds of millions of animals die from air pollution resulting from fossil fuels and bio biofuel combustion. And while renewables do cause some damage, I mean, certainly wind you know, causes some bird deaths. The bird deaths, for example, from wind turbines are trivial in comparison with bird deaths due to buildings. I mean, the American Bird Conservancy, for example, estimates about 500,000 to 800,000 birds die from wind turbines each year in the United States. But the same group suggests that 1 billion birds die every year from buildings and three billion die from cats. So it's the kind of things taken out of proportion that uh, you know if we if we eliminate and a lot and a lot die from and actually one study found for example that fossil fuels kill ten times the number of birds per unit energy electricity generated than do wind turbines, and that's because of the air pollution, because of the fossil fuel infrastructure, because of the mining that invades their habitat. So everything has to be put in perspective. There, nobody wants to add anything to the environment, but given that we do need to add some things to the environment, what is the best to, thing to add? And clean, renewable energy sources, such as wind, water, solar, electric appliances and machines, uh, these are the cleanest and safest, not only air pollution point of view, but a climate point of view, also water point of view and a lamp. What, what do you think the biggest paradigm shifts that people are going to have to go through to realize that this is this, this is possible. And I'll give you maybe as an example. So 
Uh, on this podcast, we've talked a fair bit about um, microgrids. We've talked a fair bit about the electrification of vehicles and and you know so they're, they're the the sort of like naysayers for electric vehicles. It's like for those that have driven electric vehicles and those that understand that industry realize that it's an inevitability and that it's actually a better experience and a bunch of other better, better, better. But um, and another example is is this idea of like we, we, we seem to be trying to hold on to this macro grid, this big grid, this distributed energy power or this uh, this large grid system um, where there seems to be great opportunities for microgrids. And there's actually just going to be a it's a paradigm shift for a lot of people. But what are some of those big paradigm shifts that you think that people need to sort of like um, have or go undergo to, to really realize that, that, that this is something that we can do, we can accomplish, we can do it in actually a short period of time. It doesn't have to take a long time. Well, I think actually experiencing such a system uh, really is beneficial. I mean, that driving an electric car, for example, once somebody drives an electric car, you know, often they never want to go back because of the better acceleration, safer. Actually, the fuel cost is so much lower than a gasoline car, less maintenance, and it's quieter. Everything about it is just like, why would you want to do anything else? You know, the, the main problem with electric cars has historically been range anxiety that people mm-hmm. get because they feel they can't go far. But that is being overcome now. That has been overcome now. We have cars that are that can go 400 miles on a charge. But even those that go 300 miles, that's that's really good. Or 250 miles. That's good for you know ninety five percent of people's needs, but and also you know there are now charging stations. Tesla actually this week uh, put up its fifty thousand supercharger in the wow. world in since two thousand twelve, and so fifty thousand superchargers and that's and these are like fast chargers. These are not just like your trickle charge or even even moderate charge. These are fast chargers where people can charge their their vehicle you know within an hour. And uh, so that's reduced range anxiety uh, quite a bit. And but also living in a home or, or visiting a home that's you know, re- all renewable. I mean, it's just very comfortable. And knowing facts about that, like you've just reduced costs. I mean, not paying a bill. You know, once you have an electrified home, for example, not having to pay a bill for the next twenty-five years in either electricity or gas, or if you have electric vehicles, even vehicle bills, that is something that people will really say once they realize that, they'll want to change completely. So, but it's hard to get, you know, it's hard to reach so many people. I mean, you can reach a few people. And, um, but, you know, one thing that is driving a change right now is the costs of renewable energy have gone, come down substantially. In particular, solar and wind costs are enormously, have dropped enormously. And much less than a dollar a watt capital cost. Whereas something like nuclear, there's a new nuclear plant that was just opened in Georgia. And that cost was about $15.6 a watt, the capital cost. There's $35 billion for 2.2 sort of gigawatts. Wow. So $15.6 a watt versus new wind or solar is less than a dollar a watt. So low cost has resulted in many states growing wind and solar substantially. In fact, nine of the states with the most wind as a percentage of electricity power, electric power generation in the U.S. are all states that don't actually have incentives aside from the federal tax credit or any policies to push. And it's because it's so cheap. Same with solar. Solar is growing like gangbusters 
not only in the U.S., but throughout the world because it's inexpensive. And not only that, batteries are coming down in cost. The sell price of batteries this week dropped to below, to around $98 a kilowatt hour, which is, I mean, had been there in 2021, but jumped up after that. But it's come down again, and it seems it's going on a definite downward spiral trend, which is good uh, because the lower, if we can get battery costs down even more, then there's no stopping combination of batteries with wind and solar and all the electrification I've been talking about to transition the world to 100% clean renewable energy and storage. Yeah, you know, it's pretty easy to make the economic argument for any you know given homeowner. And I think that's what the residential solar industry tries to do when they're out knocking on doors or talking to people over the phone is to say, hey, look, here's your economic cost for transition. And and you know, the truth of the matter is, is that we're still seeing those costs higher than they need to be. Um, the soft costs of solar in the United States remain really high. There's a lot of bureaucracy and red tape, even though you've got fantastic tailwinds at the federal level, at the local level, we still sort of like fight an up- uphill battle to, to be able to get any given customer installed. Um, you know, like uh, we, we also see the way the form factor and the way that we're kidding and and uh, putting packages together for solar and for batteries at the residential level, we're, st- we're still seeing batteries in the kind of $1,000 per kilowatt hour um, being deployed. And we're seeing solar in California, the most expensive market in the country, um, or excuse me, most expensive market in the world uh, for residential solar in the $4 range. So obviously there's huge improvements to be made there, but you can still make a very strong economic argument for any given homeowner to make the transition both for transportation as well as for the electrification of their home. And there are some fantastic incentives for things like heat pumps and other things now through the Inflation Reduction Act. I know that your research has done a lot of research on the global economic cost. I'd love if you could just talk to our listeners a little bit about what is the, the both the global need and the global cost for transition to renewable energies. And I, I actually heard you mention this in another location. I was shocked to, to, to hear the number on the one hand, it sounds really high, but when you realize what we're spending for electricity, you realize that this is something from an economic perspective that's totally doable. Yeah. Well, let me answer that. But first, I want to address a good point you just made, that residential solar costs are higher than the cost I mentioned. And that's because the cost I mentioned were utility scale prices yep. of solar, which is less or a dollar a water less. But yeah, less, residential yeah. could be $4 a water higher and and so it's really a question of economies of scale because yeah, residential is the most expensive that you can get. Communities, solar is a little bit less. You know, maybe industrial solar is even a little less than you get to utility scales less. And it's really, what I understand, is most cost of labor, you know, doing uh, for doing one home versus multiple homes versus... Yeah, it's it's those soft costs, right? So it's the cost of, a, of, a, of you know, you have to pull a permit at three to $500 per kind of seven kilowatts versus, you know, you still are going to have huge permitting fees for a utility scale project, but you're going to have much better economies of scale. Right. And then you've got all of the design components, you know, in in um, in Australia, for example, I can call and order solar today and get it installed tomorrow uh, residentially for around a buck 20. The permitting is a standardized process. There's no fees for it. Uh, the It's just a much different process. Here in the United States, we've figured out a way to add a lot of um, the, of these soft costs, and then the last part is is our customer acquisition costs are extremely high, particularly in California. Um, the the marketing and sales component to solar is really high on a on a unit economic uh, basis. Well, 
Well, I've noticed that one of the barriers to getting residential rooftop solar or even utilities, any other type of rooftop solar, is that utilities are against it and have been fighting tooth and nail to try totally. to, redu to reduce rooftop solar and the benefits mm -hmm. from it. And this really, and so, you know, we'll, we'll need both utility scale solar and rooftop solar for a transition. We can't just do all utility scale or we can't just do all rooftop because just this, the problem is so huge. We do need both. But there is this advantage of rooftop solar or several advantages, aside from the fact that you need less transmission because you're using a lot of your own electricity from the rooftop solar. And the re reduction of transmission line requirements is actually very pivotal because fires in California, for example, and in, in Maui were due to transmission line fires. And utilities that are, promote, are trying to prevent the growth of rooftop solar could actually be increasing the chances of fires because of their, they're then requiring more, more utilities, transmission lines. The other obvious benefits are that you do consume your own power and that enables you to eliminate a lot of your, a lot of electricity bills and additional costs associated with electricity bills. And this is what the utilities don't like. Uh, but it also enables you in a blackout to provide your own power if you have batteries as well. And and in fact, it's very seamless because I have batteries in my home and whenever there's been, I'm connected to the grid, but I supply about 120% of my household needs solar electricity and I send the rest back to the grid. But when there is a blackout, then the batteries kick in instantaneously and can provide power to essential needs. So, and so I would strongly urge people who get, see, see their utilities trying to oppose rooftop solar to really push back against them because they're really just harming this transition, trying to prevent a large-scale growth of rooftop solar. But back to your question about large-scale costs. So we calculate that worldwide the capital cost of transitioning, this includes rooftop solar costs and their capital costs and, and utility scale and wind, and, solar and wind costs and batteries and everything else, transmission lines, is on the order of $62 trillion but we save a huge amount of money worldwide by transition because we reduce the energy requirements by on the order of 56% of electrification in providing the electricity with wind, water, solar. And that's due to five reasons. One is battery electric vehicles are much more efficient than internal combustion engine vehicles. Worldwide, there's on the order you know, 15% reduction in power demand due to any individual vehicle could reduce its demand by about 75%. But averaged overall energy sectors, it's about a 15% reduction. Then heat pumps instead of combustion heaters, that also reduces demand worldwide by, by a significant amount, over 20%. And then uh, electrification of industry reduces demand a few percent. Oh, most people are not aware that about 11.3% of all energy worldwide is used to mine, transport, and refine fossil fuels and uranium. We eliminate the energy. And then we think we can get additional end-use energy efficiency improvements down by another 6 or 7%. So when we added that, add that all up, it's about 56% reduction of the end-use power demand. And that means you know, if your cost per unit energy is the same with renewables versus fossil fuels, if you're using 56% less energy, you're paying 56 fewer dollars every year. 
But in fact, the cost per unit energy of renewables, or when you look at the aggregate overall renewable, uh, all sector transportation transformation, you know, we're, we're going to get at least a 15% reduction of cost per unit energy. So we find that the in 2050, the annual costs are 63% lower worldwide for energy uh, than with fossil fuels. So that's instead of right now, the world spends about $11 trillion per year on energy. And that's expected to rise to about 17 to $18 trillion per year by 2050. But if we electrify and provide the electricity with clean renewable energy, we go down to about $6.5 trillion per year with just wind, water, solar. So it's about $11 trillion per year difference. So if we're saving $11 trillion per year and our capital cost is $62 trillion up front, that means the payback time is on the order of five to six years. So it's much cheaper no matter how you look at it. And that's before you even account for the health and co- climate cost savings, which are another $30 trillion to each. Health costs right now due to energy are about $30 trillion per year based on statistical cost of life worldwide. And climate costs in 2050 are expected to be $30 trillion per year. So we would say in 2050, the 30 plus 30, it's 60 trillion plus another $11 trillion per year in energy costs. That's saving about $71 trillion per year. And so we reduce our social costs by about 92%. So 63% reduction of energy costs, 92% reduction of social costs due to transitioning the world to wind, water, solar. It's a no-brainer. It's really silly to pursue this. So when you take the math equation, you look at 62, $11 you're offsetting. It looks like a five-year, six-year payback type of a thing. I'm, just to take the exercise out a little bit further, though, I'm curious. First of all, has there been scrutiny on that $62 million number as it relates to you know how, how, how easily will we be able to scale um, these different uh, technologies? Is it gonna, are we going to have a scale advantage or a disadvantage as we make that transition? That's the first question. I've got several others to sort of like challenge yeah. you on that, but uh, that, well, maybe I'll start with that one. Yeah, first, this is a transition that's from now until 2050. So these numbers are 2050 numbers. Gotcha. I mean, I think there's no, there's nothing intrinsically that stops us from transitioning. It's really a political and social question whether we can actually galvanize society to do this. And I'm not saying we can. I mean, I, I would say we have to try the best we can to do it. But there's no reason, like, the, you know, the world, in, during World War II, we, you know, the world built about 800,000 airplanes in five years from almost nothing. And it was a massive and also ships and other types of industry just ramped up. So, you know, when there's a an emergency, you know, I think you know, if we decide we want to do it, and I say, when I say we, I mean the world collectively, because just the U.S. doing it or just even China's just doing it or just some individual countries doing it is not enough. We need everybody. Whether that happens is really a political and social question, so I can't answer that. But I, I can say that we can try our best. And I think from my my role is to educate people about the possibility and try to and then encourage them to do this because it's something that concluded is, is a good thing. But can we ramp up? Um, yeah, again, it's there's no technical reason why we can't. It's really a question of whether we want. 
So what, what else, what's built into that $62 trillion number? Is it, um, is it talking about just the, the generation of the energy or is it talk about the infrastructure and the, you know, because obviously useful life of a combustion engine car is 20 plus years at this point. You know, so when you're, when you're talking about a transition, you have to talk about, you know, getting rid of all combustion engines on the road and, and transitioning to um, EVs, for example. So what's built into that $62 trillion number? And if, if everything isn't built in, what are the, uh, the other added or superfluous costs? Not superfluous, okay. excuse me, the additional costs that we're going to incur as part of that transition. Well, yeah. So what it includes is its new generation of electricity like new solar, new wind. So we have some existing wind and solar and hydro. We don't add any new hydro in this plans, but it's all it's all new generation plus storage. So cost of batteries, cost of some concentrated solar power with storage, um, costs. Well, we ha- we also have existing pumped hydro. There's there's some new pumped hydro storage in the plans. It's cost of new extra long distance transmission. Is cost of new heat pumps for uh, heat pumps for uh, district heating systems. Like when you have when you have an underground thermal energy storage, for example, uh, then you'll need to convert some electricity to heat to supply the heat for underground storage. Includes, um, but it does not include like the. It assumes that cars, for example, that like as you said, like cars in the last 15, 20 years. So. In 15, 20 years, everybody's going to, who has a car is going to buy a new car. So you're going to spend the same amount, whether, or on the approximately at that time, the same amount on whether it's electric car or fossil fuel car. So it's assumed very simply, simplistically that people are spending about the same on new infrastructure, certain new things. Like when you're buying a new heater, uh, when your gas heater breaks down in your home and you buy a new heat pump, it's going to be similar when, especially it turns out though you save a lot of money like when you buy a new heat pump or a gas get an electric car versus a gasoline car you're going to save a lot of money in gasoline far more than the higher capital cost today but so there the appliances it assumes that we we would be spending that money anyway so this is new stuff that would not new money that would not be needed for most new appliances. However, having said that, you know, even fossil fuel plants, let's say we didn't go to wind, water, solar, we would be spending a lot of money on new fossil fuel plants as well. So this is not like money that just has to come out of nowhere. This is money that's going to be spent anyway for the most part. All of it, the 62 trillion plus car vehicle costs. But it does not include vehicle costs because we're assuming that's being re- the vehicles are just being replaced or would be we'd spend money on those anyway. Yeah. So one of the things that I oftentimes ask the the guests that come on the show, uh, particularly people that have sort of like an expertise like you do, is a lot of homeowners are passionate about the idea of transitioning to renewables, but maybe feel a little bit helpless in terms of their own ability to do so. Now, obviously, people can go solar, people can buy electric vehicles. But what are the the biggest impact drivers that any individual can and should be doing uh, that are sort of like free. It doesn't cost them anything to make the transition uh, environmentally, socially, or financially that they can do to, that, that, makes a, that makes a difference in terms of uh, transitioning us more towards a, a renewable uh, society. Well, the lowest hanging fruit is, for example, weatherizing your home, sealing cracks, because all it requires is some caulk or some 
<laughs> to ceiling cracks in windows and doors. Um, you know, and another low hanging fruit is changing your light bulb to LED light bulbs. Then certainly driving less, uh, telecommuting more, bicycling, uh, you know, using less energy in general. Uh, then, you know, then, you know, so there, but most everything else has some cost, but a lot of the cost sometimes is something you'd be spending anyway. So, like when you're next time your heater breaks down, you want to get an electric a heat pump air heater, same with air conditioner, heat pump air conditioner, or water heater when it breaks down, get an electric heat pump, uh, water heater or dryer, uh, electric induction cooktop, next vehicle be electric vehicle. But so there are things you can do in your own life, but like these trying to electrify everything over time, but also trying to support policies or support policymakers or want to transition as well. Because that's so from a policy point of view, people co collectively can make decisions to just they they want to get some policies in, enacted. That means you have to support policymakers who support clean renewable energy. Yeah, and what are the what from from your perspective? What are the most important policies to to champion? Right. So, I mean, there are things that uh, maybe are lower impact but come up on the ballots. Things like moving away from plastic straws to paper straws, for example. I mean, what are the what are the policies that that people should really keep an eye on and watch that they should sort of like prioritize as important uh, policies to really? Well, champion? I think that the most effective policy to date have been renewable portfolio standards, requiring the transition to 100% renewables in the electric power sector, and so there are 19 states and territories that have such laws and policies to go to 100% renewables. But I think those policies need to be extended to other sectors. So transportation, we need to go to 100% electric vehicles, which include some hydrogen fuel cell for long distance heavy transport. And you stage that. So by certain year, you 20%, certain year, you have 30%, et cetera. But ideally, we'd transition completely such that all new vehicles would be 100% renewables. Right. All new vehicles sold should be 100% renewables within a few years. And so we... In fact, we shouldn't be able to sell anything also more than three years from, you know, Norway last year, I think 90% of all the new vehicles were electric and they, they have, you know, a substantial portion of their entire fleet is now electric in Norway. So it's possible to do. Um, same thing with buildings. We want to transition buildings and so all new buildings should be fully electric and we should be able to try to have policies to go to 100% electrification of existing buildings, so retrofitting. Same thing in industry, we need timelines. We should have 100%. There should be no new fossil sources past 2035 for anything. I mean, even long-distance aircraft, we should have you know, hydrogen fuel cell for long-distance and electric battery electric for a short distance um, before that. Yeah, maybe because you're in academia, um, I'll maybe ask the question. So I get a lot of young people that ask me like, hey, I, I believe in this energy transition. I think it's inevitable. How do I best position myself to be in a place that I can be both impactful, but also from a career perspective, be in the right place? So I, I'm sure as, an, as a professor and as an advisor, you've had a lot of people that have asked you similar sorts of questions. How do you sort of like guide people through that, that, that conversation? Well, I think we want to focus on clean renewable energy. So wind, water, solar, electrification storage, uh, also making the grid more efficient, 
controls on the grid. Uh, these are the these are the jobs where young people should be aiming for, and also electric appliances and machines. Not and don't, but don't get distracted by what I call the all of the above policy technologies, <laughs> such as carbon capture, direct air capture, blue hydrogen, electrofuels, small modular nuclear reactors. Uh, you know, any type, any type of bioenergy, geoengineering. These are technologies that are totally not helpful one uh, for solving the air pollution or climate problems or energy security problems we face. But they're getting a lot of play in the press. And in fact, the Inflation Reduction Act, about 40% of the funding is going to these what I call useless endeavors, do nothing but uh, distract us from real solutions. I would, uh, I would suggest this students. Yeah. I would say that's a, that's that's certainly a hot take even for this this podcast, right? So wh- maybe you can kind of expand on that a little bit more. Um, why why they're useless? Why are you why are you so focused specifically on? And by the way, we call this the solar podcast. This isn't bad news for us, but you know why are you so focused on solar, wind, and and water? Why are these other you know hydrogen, um, nuclear? Why why are these technologies not part of the renewable energy mix? Well, I should clarify that green hydrogen is good, which is hydrogen produced from wind, water, solar, electricity. But the applications of hydrogen should only be ammonia production, steel production, long-distance transport, some uses for electricity production on the grid as storage, but not for heating buildings, not transported in pipelines, not for passenger vehicles, not for combustion, which are the hydrogen... the fossil fuel industry is trying to push hydrogen into everything, and they want to use what's called, well, they're, 96% of all hydrogen produced worldwide today is gray hydrogen, which is from natural gas. And they want to, the natural gas industry wants to keep this natural gas produced hydrogen, but use carbon capture with natural gas production of hydrogen, and that's called blue hydrogen. So we do not support that at all. For any purpose, because blue hydrogen means you have more mining natural gas and there's no carbon capture on the mining. You need two types of carbon capture equipment on steam reforming natural gas to produce hydrogen. Anyway, there's just, and then you need to transport the CO2, you need to trap the CO2 and transport it. And 75% of all CO2 captured today is used for enhanced oil recovery. And that process releases 40% of the CO2 right back to the air. But the point is, is that the fossil fuel industry has four technologies that it's been pushing blue hydrogen, carbon capture, direct air capture, and electrofuels. All of them involve keeping the fossil fuel industry in business, and they're completely useless for climate. So, why not carbon capture? Well, carbon capture requires energy and equipment. And even in the best case, when you're using renewable energy to power the carbon capture equipment, that renewable energy then cannot be used to replace a fossil fuel. A carbon dioxide source, an air pollution source such as coal or natural gas, and using renewable energy to replace a fossil source reduces more CO2 than does using that same renewable energy to run carbon capture. Plus, that re- using renewable to replace the, C- the fossil source eliminates the air pollution, fossil mining, and the fossil infrastructure. Carbon capture doesn't do any of it. So the result is carbon capture only increases air pollution. And it increases fossil mining, increases fossil infrastructure, and it increases carbon dioxide. So it has no useful purpose whatsoever. And most of it's used for enhanced oil recovery. And you got to store it, and then you got to build pipelines over people's land. 
It's just a ridiculous proposition. Direct air capture where you're sucking CO2 out of the air, exactly the same, requires even more energy. That energy, even if renewable, then prevents the renewable energy from replacing a fossil fuel source, therefore increasing CO2, increasing air pollution, increasing fossil mining, increasing fossil infrastructure. Electrofuels, they're, they're fuels that try to replace gasoline by taking that CO2 captured from one of these other sources, combining with other chemicals that have to be mined and using a lot of energy to put those together to produce electrofuels to replace gasoline, which is still, the electrofuels are still burned. So again, you have this ridiculous carbon capture, but now you have even worse chemical processes and all energy requirements to basically do the same thing as gasoline, whereas it's much better to go to battery electric vehicles powered by wind, water, or solar. For small modular nuclear reactors, well, they don't exist. They're not even going to be commercial till no sooner than 2030. And right now, the costs are supposed to be similar. There's no evidence they'll be take any less time than large reactors. There's no evidence they'll have less risk of weapons proliferation risk. In fact, it's easier because they're smaller. You can move around the world. You have meltdown risk. There's you know, some technologies claim they don't have such meltdown risk. Evidence we've seen and other technologies still have it. Uh, there's underground uranium mining risk, lung cancer risk. 10% of all uranium miners underground have died of lung cancer historically. Wow. You have to store waste for hundreds of thousands of years. And if you reprocess the waste, you make the, you create more weapons-grade materials. So there's really no be benefit we've seen of small modular reactors over large reactors. They could have the same problems in terms of costs and delays. Yeah. So I, I guess I was expecting you to at least spend a little bit more time talking about how it's just a half step that's a distraction to a better solution. But uh, I, I think what you're really saying is it's just worse. Yeah, and, it's uh, worse. Not... It makes the problem worse and harder to solve. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where to me, it just feels like a math problem. Why then, if it's such a straightforward math problem, do we allow ourselves to get distracted with these sorts of things? If it, it really is as simple as saying the math says that this is worse. Well, it's because there are a lot of people who have different interests. There's, you know, the fossil fuel industry, of course, has a self-interest to stay alive. And so they're going to oppose that the nuclear industry has a self-interest, the, the agriculture industry has self-interest to promote biofuels. And then you have some scientists who are just stuck on beliefs. Then you have, and you have policymakers who don't know what to do, don't, don't know who to believe. And so they just, they just default to the all of the above. Let's just try everything and hope something works. So I, th I think the main problem is education for those who don't have a financial self-interest in it. Um, so educating the public and policymakers, but it's difficult because there's so much information being thrown at people people don't believe. Yeah, I mean, you're distilling it down and speaking fairly matter-of-factly about it such that, you know, it leads me to believe that the, that the solutions are fairly straightforward. Uh, it just seems like we need the right people to listen to the, to the very straightforward solutions and straightforward answers. I, I think that you speak in an extremely compelling way. Uh, I know that our listeners are going to love uh, to, you know, hearing, uh, you know, that 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 there is a wind, solar, and water approach to electrifying our lives. That's clean, it's renewable, and it doesn't have a negative impact on us. And the transition is going to be something that's both possible and and again, just going back to the uh, going going back to your book, it, it's not a miracle, right? So there's no miracle needed. It's something that we are in control of, and that we can we can sort of like usher in this. Uh, this transition and, and do it in a very calculable way. And and a, a phrase that I love, again, just going back to it, it's just math, right? I mean, this is just yeah. a math problem that we're solving. Well, yeah, you, 
you said it better than I could have said it. Just it's a really straightforward problem, and you know we have the technologies, we have the wherewithal. At this point, the key is to just deploy, deploy, deploy. I mean, if we deploy as much as possible, first costs will go down even more upon more and more deployment, just due to economies of scale. And that is we, you know, if people say, "Oh, well, we." It's going to be hard, like, to keep the grid stable when we have ninety-five percent renewables. Well, let's get there and have that solve that problem closer. To yeah, that point. We're yeah. not even close to that point. Let's go solve that problem. I like that, Mark. I know that you're highly sought after. We're absolutely flattered and thrilled that you came on and spent as much time with us as you did. It's been absolutely fantastic. I know that I've actually heard some of these things, and I've actually studied a lot of the research that you've done, and it's been great to just hear it from you firsthand. And and I know that our listeners are going to be. Um, you know, extremely excited and uh, to, to 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 learn some of these things for themselves. Um, maybe just real quick, um, I, I actually purchased your book. The easiest place I found it was on Amazon. I'm sure that it's easily accessible in other places as well. That's where I bought it. Um, but uh, but again, Mark, thank you so much for coming on and listening to, or excuse me, sharing. Um, you know what I think is a really straightforward approach to a solution that we all agree we should be working on, and it's nice to know that this is something that we can do together. Well, thank you for having me on, Dave. I really appreciate it.